I want to use that as an introduction for what we're going to talk about today. When, when I was a kid and I watched TV, um, we watched shows like Leave it to Beaver. Well, there's one other person that's heard of that. <laughs> and Leave it to Beaver, in Leave it to Beaver, Ward and June, if there was ever, that was the mom and dad, if there was ever a picture of their bedroom, they had two beds. Because the TV censors wouldn't let you show a single bed and a couple possibly sleeping in a single bed. And you would see them actually getting dressed, and, because as time went on, they would go and get in their bed. One of my other favorite shows growing up was uh, a show called The Lucy Show. And, and when, when Lucy was expecting, the TV writers were not allowed to use the word pregnant. How quaint. So the problem with the whole depiction of sex in 50s and 60s TV was largely they viewed sex as something that was dirty. Why would you have to show two beds if it wasn't dirty, right? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there, there are legitimate considerations, but in a sense, the atmosphere that you drank in and you sensed when the idea of sex was discussed is it's something dirty. And so what happened was people began to push back against that and say, no, sex isn't dirty. Sex is, is something good. Uh, they might not have used that as terms, but they began to push back. And so then what started happening was, starting in the late 60s, the, the boundaries began to get pushed. And a little more, and a little more, and a little more, until today, on TV, especially particularly cable TV, because network TV is the audience is has diminished and dropped so much. Uh, on cable TV, you have shows like, uh, gosh, True Blood, Spartacus, Mad Men, Sex in the City, Girls, Games of Thrones, and these TV shows are really different than Leave it to Beaver. I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, Game of Thrones. But Beaver wasn't on that move, that show. And there weren't two beds. It's, it's a completely different ballgame. It's just, it's, it's not drenched in sex, but it's very explicit. It's very upfront. It's just there in almost every episode. And uh, HBO has just pioneered this whole idea. And it kind of took it into the mainstream with Sex and the City back in, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and people just, the boundaries just keep getting pushed, pushed, pushed. So that's where we are today. And, and I think, honestly, a lot of it is a re- reaction to this whole idea that my generation, when I grew up, that depicted sex as something that's dirty. And it's like, gosh, we're all embarrassed about it. Uh, but that, you know, that's, we shouldn't have that whole view of this issue of sex. And I think if you were going to summarize where we went to from 50s and 60s to now, sex is casual. I don't want to say casual sex, but that's probably where we're at too. But sex is something that's casual. It's a, it's, you know, it's like an hors d'oeuvre. It's, it's just another, it's getting your hair cut, sex. Uh, it's just another bodily function, and we, we really don't, for the most part, people treat it 
just in a very generic way now, right? That's where we've come to. Well, I want to I want to propose to you, and I want you to go on this little journey with me. I think it's it's clear, and I want to show you some voices outside the church who argue that we've gone too far from where where we've gone on this journey with respect to sex. That we have taken things to the point that we're seeing the kind of outcomes that our parents could only have nightmares about. So I want to look at, just real quickly, these are, I want to give you some quotes, stats, some, there are voices in our culture, again, none of them, none of the voices I'm going to quote here are Christian, or even religious, remotely religious. These are voices from public institutions and entertainment, the entertainment industry, and just people who are concerned and are saying, you know, we've taken this to a place where we're starting to see the kind of outcomes that that we're really concerned about. So we're going to look at sex and marriage, sex on the internet, and sex among singles, and see just a few indicators of where things are. First, surveys say now over 20% of marriages are sexless marriages. And not just among people my age. (laughs) Uh, Among people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. Of course, the frequency of sex is going to diminish as people get older, but they're seeing people who are bored with sex in their 20s and 30s that are married. Married couples across all ages and demographics, research shows that they're having less sex now than they did 10 years ago and 20 years ago. That each decade, the frequency of sex and marriage is dropping about 10%. Now, you wouldn't think with all that we've come to embrace about sexuality that it would be that way. But that's the way it is. And it's surprising, researchers. Less people are getting married every year. More people are living together. And whether they're married or living together, they're having less sex. 10% of people report checking their smartphone during sex. I'm not making this up. Something's going on on the internet. 35% of the people in this survey who who answered this question said as soon as they finish sex, they pick up their smartphone. So we don't smoke a cigarette anymore. Now we have a smartphone. Since 1991, the rate of infidelity, which is sex outside of marriage by married people, has doubled among men, and it's tripled among women. So this is where our views of sex, casual sex, is taking us. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like good news, anything that I read there. Now let's look at sex on the internet. 12% of all websites now are porn sites. 12%. I looked at some statistics of the traffic on porn sites. It's mind-blowing There are porn sites that have millions of hits a day. 
the average age when boys and girls start watching porn is now 11 years old. Because kids have phones, and you can access porn on phones. We used to just worry about sexting, right? Because we had text, and kids were texting. Then they started sending pictures. Now they're just looking at porn. A Canadian researcher who was trying to understand the, the sexual habits of college kids in Canada had to give up his research at one college in Canada because he couldn't find a male student who hadn't had sex. Because you, you have to have a control group, right, when you're researching certain things. So people are having sex with somebody who hasn't had sex. He couldn't find a student, a male student, that hadn't had sex already. What scientists tell us now, that it only takes a couple of weeks of watching porn for you to reach the point in your brain where... Scientifically, you're considered addicted to porn. That the, the pleasure centers in our brains that go off with the most serious kind of drug addiction, the levels of that, that porn reaches that level within a couple of weeks. So what might take someone months and years to achieve in terms of coming to that place of being addicted through using some kind of drug, substance abuse, people, kids, whoever can get there in a week or two just because of the power of porn and what it does and how quickly a porn site can deliver a new image and a new image and a new image and a new image and a new image. Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's a pioneer in sexual addiction, said in his opinion, porn addiction will be the next great health crisis in our country due to the way changes the way our brain functions. And, and, and he would say it damages the way our brain functions. Erectile dysfunction among young men who watch porn is becoming an epidemic. That young men who watch a lot of porn can't get it up. When you're in your 20s and you have erectile dysfunction, you've got to be saying there's something wrong with this, Right? There's, a, there's whole swaths of young men in their 20s who are giving up porn now because they're seeing what it's doing to them. Porn desensitized men and women in these really sad ways that research has shown that men who look at porn begin to have and exhibit dehumanizing and misogynistic attitudes towards women. And women who look at porn, which is a lot of women now because it, porn is so ubiquitous, they are less likely to respond with concern or aid to other women who are being mistreated in different ways. So women who look at porn act and care less about other women who are being discriminated against or even being treated violently. This is, this is where casual sex is taking us. And I could go into that. The research around that is shocking how it affects our relationships. And, and one of the big things that I grew up with was that sex is, between two consenting adults, is a victimless crime. Right? I mean, I, was, I heard that. I said that. The truth is, we are so connected together in so many ways. Everything we do affects other people. And that requires a lot of thinking in terms of public policy, but we're not, we're not talking about public policy here. I'm not going to take you 
anywhere in this talk towards some public policy advocacy. We're talking here about how we live our lives. We're going to talk here about your relationship with God and how this impacts you, how it impacts all of us. GQ magazine, not a bastion of morality and advocacy for you know, Christian sexual ethics. In 2013, one of their cover articles was 10 reasons why you should give up porn. GQ magazine. That's surprising. But people are starting to see where, we're, where we've gone. We didn't start in a great place. Thinking sex is dirty is not a, a great place to, to land anywhere. But where we're going, and at any point along the way where we've come to, it's like not, not good. Among important, there was, a, there was surveys among social problems, and they, had, they listed 11 social problems, and people were asked, where would you rank, and they included porn, where would you rank porn if you re-ranked these? They ranked it seventh right after not recycling. You can't make this up. People said, I think, I think recycling is more important than not watching porn. That's where we've come. Do you understand? It's desensitized us enough that we have been, we're, we're deceived about where we've gone. Now, let's talk about sex among singles. This is where the boundary pushing has been the most impacting. Now, you would think it's impacting among married people. Yeah, it's impacting among the young and, you know, and, and uh, porn. Single people, now, this is the truth. <laughs> Single people have always had sex. You know, there's people who aren't married have always had sex. Uh, there, there's a famous rabbi who said, if two adults, and this is, this is back in uh, the intertestamental period before the time of Christ, this rabbi, the rabbis had a saying, if two adults have been alone for 30 minutes, they've had sex. <laughs> so, you know, people were having sex a long time ago. People are having sex now. Single people have sex. Single people are delaying marriage, living together before marriage, and dating less than any time that we've ever known. In fact, I read a Vanity Fair article this week, and she said, a 29-year-old young woman who lived in Manhattan said, I'm living in the dating apocalypse. Because there, there are apps some of you might have heard of this before. I, I don't have it on my phone. I'm just going to explain it to you. <laughs> There's an app called Tinder. And it's an upgrade. We used to have chat rooms and AOL. And then we had Match.com. Now you have Tinder. And what Tinder does, it, it has a picture and a short little bio. And you can find someone to date. And really, it's a hookup app. That's, everybody talks about, for the most part, that's what it's for. And this Vanity Fair article just went into length. They, they, they interviewed hundreds of people who just live in Manhattan and described, you know, Manhattan is, Manhattan in, in many ways is where the culture goes. Same thing with L.A. There are places that are very influential. They're, they're bellwethers for other uh, geographical places. 
you can, if, if you see someone on Tinder that you like, you swipe right. And that sends an immediate message to them. And, it's, and it works geographically. So you can, you, when you look at Tinder, it shows you who, who has the Tinder app, who has it on, who is available, is near you, geographically near you. And you, you look at their picture, you read their little blurb, very short blurb, like Match.com, you fill out this exhaustive personality profile. With, with Tinder, you can just say, people put on there, I just want to hook up. And people see it, they go, oh, if she looks good, swipe right. And then you get a note, their, you know, their response. It's a hookup app. And the singles who are, they were interviewing singles in this Vanity Fair article, and they just were saying, this is like totally changing relationships completely. And not everybody's on Tinder, but it's a very popular app. I think there's a new one out called Hinge. I don't know much about that, but I'm sure nobody in here is going to say that they know what Hinge is, but you're in church, right? You're supposed to all lie. And these, these singles in Manhattan said, we live in a hookup culture. That that is, when you're single, that is the world you live in. Now, when I was younger, (laughs) contrary to whatever impression you've gotten, my chasing of women ended up with me not catching women. All right? I chased a lot of women, but I, I, you know, I had a, a few, like I had one date in high school. One date my senior year. I was not, I just never could figure out women. I'm not, I'm glad Kathy married me because I'd be lost in this hookup culture. These young people in Manhattan that were interviewed for this Vanity Fair article, except for some of the guys, were just saying, this is a complete game changer. Whatever we heard about what our parents and even older brothers and sisters 10 years ago experienced in trying to, you know, build relationships, find relationships, this is totally different than it was. And they said... Uh, I'm going I'm to read a quote to you from a study of young Americans uh, called Premarital Sex in America. One of the things that we've been pretty well aware of is the health effects of the hookup culture have been alarming because of, of sexually transmitted diseases. And, and people have really taken that to heart and said, you know, we've got to find a way to challenge this and address this. And for the most part, people have just approached it by saying, we're going to teach safe sex. But we've taught safe sex for a while, and the rate of sexually transmitted diseases keeps accelerating. It's not flattening, plateauing and declining. It's accelerating. And it's the old argument about insanity. You know, if you keep doing the same thing the same way and think you're going to get a different result, you're insane. And I, I know so many young people. I know young people who, who are infertile now because of sexually transmitted diseases, because they just got into the hookup culture. And they, got, they picked up venereal diseases that now God can do anything, but it's broken their hearts. That, uh, you're a young woman, you're 24 years old, and, and you're sterile now because you've got a sexually transmitted disease from from a party at Ohio State. And yet, the whole culture is built around hookups. In fact, one of the things the Vanity Fair article said was that 
that young men, especially, and, and porn is a part of this too, young men get their self-esteem now by how many women and how hot the women are that they hook up with. That they feel like men because they're getting laid. That is how weird it's gotten. And we mock these cultures where, you know, uh, people discover their manhood by, you know, killing and doing that. Is this any better? Is it? It's, I, 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 it's sort of a rhetorical question, isn't it, after, at this point, what we've been talking about. And, uh, okay, Joey's told me, when it gets really heavy, every once in a while I've got to insert, just to break the tension, I've got to insert a joke. So, <laughs> insert joke here, right? Thank you, Jay. I have to give him credit. He's, he's my coach. You know why all the religions that used to sacrifice virgins in the volcano died out? They can't find any virgins. Okay. Don't tell her. Don't tell the virgin joke. That's it. But I did leave that impression that I got the, the joke from Jay. But it did break things up there, right? Just a moment. It got heavy. Break it up. This is a report, Oxford Press book, uh, by two researchers who studied, it's called Premarital Sex in America, and I read this a couple of years ago. Uh, And I'm going to read this one paragraph from uh, the chapter on No Strings Attached. Researchers have published a great deal about the effects of clinical depression on sexual functioning but very little on the emotional health consequences of sexual decision-making. Many scholars are no doubt concerned about appearing conservative or anti-sex. So entrenched is the solitary fixation on the physical risks of sex that most researchers haven't even bothered to ask about the negative emotional outcomes. So they explore this in their research. On the other hand, very many sexually active emerging adults know exactly what we're talking about because they felt it. Their negative emotions, the, the, the kids who are in the hookup culture, very, and he's going to describe some of them to you. So this is what the fruit of the hookup culture produces in young people, in singles. Their negative emotions vary widely, but can include guilt, regret, temporary self-loathing, rumination, diminished self-esteem, a sense of having used somebody else or having been used, a sense of having let yourself down, discomfort about having to lie or conceal sex from family, anxiety over the depth and the course of the relationship, and concern over the place or role of sex in the relationships. And they go on and talk about uh, you know, girls who cry every day. And, and, and they basically say, in summarizing their research, that, that men and women uh, fare differently in certain respects in the hookup culture, that men seem to be less hardened by it emotionally, you're less affected by it emotionally, whereas women are hammered by it. But men are hammered in a different way that's less obvious if you just look at it emotionally, but you can see it in their behavior and the outcomes. So sex therapists say in the last decade, since 2010, which is seven years, there's, they've, they've seen a 50% increase in millennials seeking therapy to learn how to have a good relationship. 
I don't know about you, when I was 50, I mean, when I was in my 20s, or when I was 50, but in my 20s, I, I didn't have a clue about how to have a good relationship. <laughs> but the idea that I would need to seek a sex therapist, that, that I was, I bottomed out so much that I need to see a sex therapist. I couldn't even have imagined that. I would have thought of that after I got married, maybe I had some sexual problems in marriage, but as a 20-year-old, that's where we're at. So I want to read you a passage in the New Testament which is very typical in terms of its approach about the whole idea of sex. It's just seven verses long, but I mean, I could have picked a dozen passages like this. But we're working through Ephesians, so this is the next text that we're reading. Now, and when I read this to you, I want you to just pay attention to just one simple thing before you get into the weeds of it. Just contrast what Paul says here about sex with just the sense of, the general sense that you have about sex from the casual sex approach. I just, just notice it. It's, it you're gonna, you're, I'm going to read this and you're going to go, wow. And, and you can put your own words to it. I don't want to put them in your, in your head. Okay, verse 1, chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. Not a hint of immorality? No dirty jokes? I mean, that just sounds like some weird Amish world. You know, some weird world where people are anti-sex and are all uptight and, and repressed and unhappy. And Paul says that he was writing this, if you read earlier in the passage, he was writing this because Christians struggle with this kind of a sexual ethic because they used to be not followers of Jesus. And they, his world, the world of Ephesus, this was, this was I won't go deep into the background of this letter, but Ephesus was a big city. Ephesus was a, a place where anything goes. It wasn't as wild as Corinth, but it was close. Ephesus would have been a lot like Chicago, maybe Manhattan. And the anything goes sexually that we experience today was going on there, but they were beyond it. Have you guys ever been to New Orleans? Anybody been to New Orleans during the Mardi Gras? You ever? I've been to New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And you can see live sex during Mardi Gras all over the place. I saw that back in the 70s, Mardi Gras was crazy back in the 70s. But Mardi Gras, if you, if you believe what historians say, was tame compared to Ephesus. 
So these, these people who are becoming followers of Jesus, they were having to learn a whole new sexual ethic because they lived in the wild west of sex back then, just like we do today. And so this idea, what he was saying here, was really challenging for them. And some of you are thinking maybe at this point, wow, I didn't think the Christian view was quite like that. I thought it was like a little looser, you know. But I think we fail to understand how much, you know, as a fish, we're wet. That as the culture has changed, we've embraced things. We've, and I, I, I call this, this talk, rethinking, rethinking about love. We need to rethink our rethinking because we're on this journey with the rest of our culture, but we don't have to go where everybody else is going. But we will go. Every, and this is the sad thing about church. Churches that have embraced the cultures, we can still look at this in history. Churches that have embraced things that are not gospel values slowly die. They slowly stop giving life. And the people who embrace those values of the wider culture start experiencing that personally. And it's, it, we were warned in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, like God told Adam and Eve in chapter 3, he said, don't do this one thing, because if you do, you'll die. They ate the apple, they didn't just go, ah, and fall over, right? Death is a slow thing. Moral, spiritual, social death is a slow, agonizing thing. And we've seen it happen historically many, many times. And we as people and we as communities of 